This is the problem. It's much larger than Christianity. The problem basically is people in any given religious community are not likely to have a very enlightened view or a very firsthand view of the religious beliefs and practices of people outside their community. Uh, it, there's something self-referential, self-reinforcing about having a profound religious com commitment. Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Today's guest is Professor John D. Levinson from Harvard Divinity School, and I'm re-recording the introduction that I already had because while I was in San Antonio for SBL, I attended the Paul Within Judaism panel. I got a little bit upset because I didn't really care for where the conversation went as the panelists finished what they were saying and they opened the floor to questions and comments. It seemed really insular and not particularly helpful. And it made me wonder if there was an actual understanding of the gravity of the situation of the world that we live in. I am someone who does not believe that there's any such thing as unimportant times or uninteresting times. I think you have to turn on your principles and keep them on all the time. And that said, I started to wonder if maybe because Professor Levinson and I sat down and recorded this five days before the horrific events of Hamas attack on Israel in October, if I should reach out to him to see if he had any thoughts that he wanted to add. He did not. And what he asked of me is that I acknowledge that it had happened because obviously the fact that it hadn't happened yet meant that we couldn't acknowledge it. But the more I've been thinking about it and trying to put it in the proper frame, I've been thinking about that night in the Paul Within Judaism panel. And I was remembering then something I read in my early 20s. I believe N.T. Wright was summing up the history and understanding of Judaism over time. And he gets to the middle of the 20th century. And I don't remember where he says this. So if you're listening and you want to know, I can't cite that. I don't remember where it was. But he says the Holocaust was such a shocking thing that it seemed like some of the overt anti-Semitism that had existed in biblical studies, New Testament studies, Christian studies of Judaism and understandings of Judaism, broadly speaking, were bared that after the Holocaust, because it was so horrific, the overt forms of anti-Semitism were not palatable any longer. And I started thinking in relation to that of something I heard Timothy Snyder say to Ezra Klein days after Russia invaded Ukraine, that he saw potential for a positive European identity to come out of this seeing European nations work together to try and slow down or stymie or openly combat Russia's efforts to invade and conquer another country, he felt was a sharp departure from what they had been doing since World War II, which was just avoiding world war. And I was hoping in that night, I actually just got up and left about halfway through the Paul Within Judaism panel because I wanted to think about some of this stuff and not be in a room with people who were talking for three minutes, insisting that they weren't supersessionists. I wanted to think about this stuff because I really don't know what the possibility is for there to be a philo-Semitism, which is a term that we discuss in this interview. I don't know what the equivalent of Timothy Snyder's European identity would be for a healthy, open society to have toward Jewish people that isn't just we're trying to avoid the Holocaust, that isn't just we're supporting the idea of a Jewish state, because I don't think those things are working. Anti-Semitism is so thoroughly ingrained into so much of our discourse publicly 
I'm not generally a cynical person. I see myself as an idealist and I do what I can to make that ideal become a reality. But I am very worried that the people who are having conversations, the people who are doing work may not be up to the task of helping Christians understand Judaism in a way that leaves no room for anti-Semitism. And now having talked for several minutes, I don't know what else to say other than here's my interview with John D. Levinson. John D. Levinson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Before we get going, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I am a professor of Jewish studies at Harvard Divinity School with my courses cross-listed in the arts and sciences faculty there as well in Near Eastern languages and civilizations or in religion. I did my uh, undergraduate training also at Harvard uh, in English. I majored in English literature. My father at the time said that was a good move because I already speak it. If I had said I was going to major in Chinese, how far would I have gotten in four years, right? I did a lot of uh, medieval and Renaissance studies in the European context. But then towards the end of my years in college, I decided I uh, was increasingly attracted to the study and practice of Judaism, and I would make my avocation or my personal commitment into the basis of my profession. So I went into a doctoral program there, a completely different program, completely different department, and did uh, work in uh, comparative Semitics and uh, ancient Near Eastern studies and biblical studies with the late Frank Moore Cross and G. Ernest Wright, Thomas Lambden in Semitic linguistics, Torkel Jagobson and Bill Moran in Assyriology and a few other people. And then when I graduated, I got a job at Wellesley College, a women's liberal arts college here in the Boston area. After that, I went to the University of Chicago for a number of years and lived in the Chicago area and taught the University of Chicago before I came back to Harvard in 1988. You don't have to do the math. I was minus 19 at the time and began teaching a position in, in Jewish studies, which is both biblical, primarily biblical and rabbinic, ancient Judaism, mostly biblical and rabbinic some Second Temple interests, obviously. And I even have a course, I have courses that deal with Judah's Jewish biblical interpretation of the Middle Ages and even modern Jewish theology in the 20th century, which is a, a major interest of mine from the time I was in college. So I've been an academic uh, all my life. I'm always in school. That is quite a journey. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how far I've gotten, but I've traveled. You teach at Harvard. And I cold call people to talk about teaching at Harvard. Let's dive right in. So your chapter in the book, Divine Doppelgangers, Yahweh's Lookalikes. I talked to Colin Cornell a while back and yours is your article or sorry, your chapter is very interesting. And it was an essay that you published a while back, but it's, is there a counterpart in the Hebrew Bible to New Testament anti-Semitism? I just want to start. Can you tell us how the world is different from when this was written to when this was republished in this book to now? Sure, good question. The basic idea of the article is that religions misrepresent their competition. Religious communities present the alternatives, especially a viable, strong alternative, in a form that's caricatured, that's stereotyped. To put it bluntly, they make the other communities, the communities with which they're in competition, look stupid, ignorant, hypocritical and morally corrupt. The example, the obvious example, I think most critical scholars of antiquity would agree to today, is that the description of the Jews, Judaism, the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, in much of the New Testament, by no means all, but much of the New Testament, is highly derogatory. They're obsessive, compulsive people, and they're very focused on the details and not the big thing. They missed the point. They're overly literal. They're hostile. They're angry. They're trying to defend their own power base. They're just horrible. And I think a lot of advance has been made over the last oh, 60 years, probably even more, in, under, in placing that sort of controversy and that sort of polemic, that sort of uh, literature in the world 
of, of Judaism and the Eastern Mediterranean world in general in the first century of the common era. But I think, and I think this often leads on the part of some Jews who've been involved in interreligious discourse and interfaith dialogue, which I've been involved in since I was a teenager, to think that well, the Christians have a big problem. They misrepresent us. They present us as ridiculous. They make fun of our religion. They make us look morally corrupt and intellectually and spiritually backward. And that can generate a certain amount of triumphalism and pride and so forth in Jews and in scholars of the Hebrew Bible and so forth over against, let's say, Christians and scholars of the New Testament. Of course, some scholars of the New Testament are Jews and many scholars of the Old Testament are Christians. But you see my point. My problem is that I think that this, as I studied ancient Eastern religion in graduate school, it became clear to me pretty fast that in fact, what we have in the prophets, what we have in the description of Canaanite and Babylonian religion, specifically, especially Babylonian in the Hebrew Bible, is itself often a caricature. It's often a, a kind of simple-minded stereotype, a stick figure. Nobody with any brains could possibly worship a god who was only a rock or was only a piece of wood. Uh, nobody would, would want to belong, or I think few people would want to belong to a religion that was involved in all kinds of sexually depraved activities all the time and uh, routinely torturing or murdering their firstborn children or their uh, children in general. And it occurred to me as I studied, especially Mesopotamia religion, that in fact, there is an analogy here. There's an analogy between these two forms of stereotyping. It's not unusual. It's a universal human tendency. If you're going to buy, I don't know, a Chevy, you probably don't want to ask the Ford salesman, what do you think of Chevys? And vice versa. You're probably not going to get a highly appreciative description. That's the nature of competition. That's the nature of human rivalries in general. And unfortunately, religion. Uh, often falls uh, prey to that same tendency towards self-inflating, self-righteous, stereotyping, and caricaturing of the alternative. So you ask, how has the world changed since this, I wrote this article, which is about 40 years ago now? I would say, in, at least in Europe and the United States, uh, secularization has advanced very far. Theological allegiances have declined. Denominational differences, I would say, have lessened. And the positive result of all that is more openness to perspectives from other religions or from critical scholarship about the religion or biblical history, about the scriptures. It doesn't just arise internally within scriptures. It's not just a paraphrase of what the scripture itself says, but an effort to locate this and validate it and uh, confirm or disconfirm it based on larger corpora of evidence, such as derived from archaeology and epigraphy and the study of ancient inscriptions and so forth and so on. The fields of Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism of, I don't know, let's say late Second Temple, Judaism, third, second, first century BCE, first century CE, and of Rabbinic Judaism, which is hard to know when it begins, but let's say first century CE through fifth, sixth century, and in many ways continuing to this day, has really taken off. It used to be when I was a graduate student back in the 1970s, that's the 1970s CE, that uh, it, was not, it was unusual to find Gentile scholars who had any interest in or could handle rabbinic Hebrew. Today, you can find non-Jewish scholars who can under, who, who've worked in rabbinic Hebrew and sometimes even have studied modern Hebrew and can speak modern Hebrew and can read articles written in modern Hebrew. That's by and large a shift from where things were, let's say, 50 years ago. So in that sense, there's more cross-denominational openness, partly corresponding to a higher degree of secularization and the movement of religious studies and scriptural studies out of seminaries in the religious studies departments and Near Eastern languages and Middle Eastern studies departments and that sort of thing. Again, it has its negative side as well. Now, I have to add that secularization does not mean freedom from prejudice. It doesn't mean freedom from religious prejudice. It's not as if negative stereotypes about various religions and their scriptures cannot appear within a critical historical idiom. They can occur in the critical historical idiom and, and often do. And sometimes the prejudices are just transposed into a new idiom a new vocabulary, a new intellectual framework, 
but the old prejudices find new life. Uh, uh, it was once the case that the problem with the Jews that Christendom had was their religion, their theology. It was Judaism was the problem that Jews had in the minds of Christians. Then, in maybe the 19th century, with the emergence of Darwinism and the advances of science, now racialist thinking came to the fore. And the problem with the Jews is they belong to a wrong ethnicity, they belong to the wrong race. They weren't Aryans. And that then became the main uh, focus for anti-Semitism. Today, I think that kind of racialism has uh, thankfully declined because of secularization and other factors. The religious commitments have declined for better or for worse. And now I think people think in more political terms. And now the problem with the Jews is the state of Israel and their allegiances, their Zionist allegiances. And Zionism becomes the new form. Anti-Zionism becomes a new form of anti-Semitism, which is not to say that one can't be very critical of the state of Israel without being an anti-Semite. One certainly can be very critical of the state of Israel without being an anti-Semite. But now the focus is more on politics and less on ethnicity and less on scriptural interpretation as what's wrong with the Jews. But the positive side of all that is that you can now see more openness to the Jewish background of New Testament than would have been the case 50 or 100 years ago. And that led to some major changes in how people see the Gospels, how people see Paul, how people see the very nature of early Christianity. So I think I've gone on for a long time, but I hope that answers your question about what's changed in those 40 years. I I, I love it. I love it when you guys talk for a long time. Um, there were some terms introduced that, that aren't in the essay, but there are also terms that are in the essay that fit into what you were saying. So the first one I want to ask about, I, I'll bring them all up, but the first one that I'm curious about is philosemitism. So philosemitism, and then you draw a distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. So can we just discuss those one at a time, if you'd like, or all together, if you feel like that's necessary? Yeah, that's a very good question. All these terms are slippery and can be contested. Philosemitism is a term that's sometimes used in opposition to anti-Semitism. In the case of New Testament interpretation, I think it indicates an openness and respect for Judaism and Jewish sources. One doesn't simply assume that if it's the Jews that are authoring it, if it's a Jewish source or whatever, that it's somehow legalistic and petty and spiritually dead or mindlessly ritualistic and so forth. But one is open to the dynamics of those sources. As these are relevant to Christianity, uh, particularly the rabbinic notion, rabbinic uh, genre of biblical interpretation called Midrash is very relevant. A very large part of the New Testament is Midrash. And one can understand uh, the New Testament much better if one puts it into the world of biblical interpretation as it existed in the uh, last century or two of the, before the common era and the first century or two of the common era, and uh, compare it with various forms of Jewish interpretation, biblical interpretation that existed in, in those days. So if one's open to that and respectful of it, and eager to learn from it, as opposed to setting up as a foil against which to define oneself, I call that philosemitism as the opposite of, of anti-Semitism. If you want to be technical about it, the word anti-Semitism is unfortunate. There's no such thing as Semitism. So what's it mean to be against Semitism? It goes back to the late 19th century, to, a, to specifically a German context, in which there did appear this notion of different races on a kind of Darwinian model and our primitive, simplistic Darwinian model, in which the Jews belonged to the wrong race. They were Semites. And they, their culture and their language and everything about them was supposed to be typical of being Semites, a term that, that means uh, pretty much nothing. But it's, it, anti-Semitism really goes with a kind of ethnic dislike. I think most people who, whom I would think of as anti-Semites are not really so much against Judaism, the religion. They may not even know anybody who actually practices Judaism, the religion. They're against some group called the Jews about whom they have various images of this particular ethnic group. So philosemitism would be the, the opposite of that. Anti-Judaism is in some ways a better term because one could be very critical of the Jewish religious tradition in all its variety and all its permutations over the centuries without necessarily hating Jews or 
having an ethnic definition of what the Jews are. And that is one need not be a, an anti-Semite, a racialist, racially anti-Jewish in order to be critical of Judaism. So in that sense, anti-Judaism uh, is probably a, a better term for what in, in many places, not all in the New Testament. Of course, if you're, if the Jews for thousands of years have rigorously at the cost, great cost themselves, including sometimes the cost of their lives, adhered to an idiotic, stupid, pedantic, legalistic religion, that does say something about the Jews themselves. It's hard to say you have a prejudice only against the religion and not against the people that, have, that hold it. If the people that hold it lovingly and tightly and uh, uh, firmly for thousands of years, you wonder, doesn't that imply that maybe the anti-Judaism, maybe doesn't it imply something to the anti-Semitism? You see what I'm saying? That how bad can culture of a group be over many centuries, and with the people, many of them, strongly adhering to that culture and not wanting to give it up, before you begin to say, there must be something wrong with those people that they're attracted to this self-evidently ugly thing. Of course, my claim in the essay is that it's not at all self-evident that the, the ancient Jerusalem of the time of the New Testament was ugly, or that the way the so-called idolaters in the Hebrew Bible describe themselves, are, are described in the Hebrew Bible, is so ugly either. The way, they, the way their religion is described is, again, a, a character, it's a set of stereotypes and characters, parodies, intended to neutralize its appeal. But the appeal is real precisely because those religions aren't so different from that of the people who are engaging in the caricatures and the stereotypes. The reason that the philo-Semitism term was interesting to me is because there's a thing in the discourse, and I, I don't know how pervasive it is outside of the United States, where you can't rightly call some of these Christians necessarily anti-Semitic in any kind of overt or articulable way. They don't have a recognizable animus toward Jewish people or Judaism as, as a group or as religion. They are supersessionists, and yet they participate in rhetoric unknowingly. I think it's the Rothschild's space lasers starting these fires. I don't think the person who said that, and we don't need to name them, necessarily explicitly understands that kind of conspiracy thinking, as I like to tell my son, is that anti-Semitism is conspiracy thinking find, finding its level, always ends up back there. And for this person to say that and not knowing that's an anti-Semitic trope, and yet also probably fetishizes Jewish people and Judaism and is also a supersessionist Christian, Am I putting pieces together that don't belong together, or is that a discourse that you see? No, I think they, those pieces do belong together. I think the notion of the Jews as conspirators, as undermining the public order, as connected to magic, connected to the devil, connected to witchcraft, poisoning the wells, or whatever uh, paranoid vision comes up, I think that has very deep roots. We can leave aside the question of what I believe the, the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of John, means in the New Testament. I believe that's the way you have the expression synagogues of Satan. Apart from what that may have meant in its original context, the fact is that the notion that there's something satanic and diabolic about the Jews has been part of the, the rhetoric or conceptual universe of Christianity practically from the beginning. You look at the crucifixion scenes in, in the Gospels, you can see this, his blood be upon us and upon our children, that sort of thing, and Matthew. So you can understand how this view of the Jews as sneaky and malign and having control, being under the influence of or having control of diabolical powers has a very, is very deeply rooted in the, in the history of anti-Semitism, the history of the Christianity. Which, of course, a very large number of Christians, especially in modern times, have striven valiantly to oppose. We should not ignore that. That that you shouldn't. We shouldn't simply present Christianity in in toto as somehow anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. There are many Christians 
including Christian scholars of the New Testament and of other moments in Christian history that are very concerned with directing the record on that. And and that's where philo-Semitism enters in. I just, I, I felt it was, because I hear so much of, I'm not an anti-Semite, I support Israel. In my mind, that sounds very much like someone thinking that they're not a racist because they were like, I support the Back to Africa movement of the <laughs> early right. 20th, late 19th century. And I guess on the one hand, you may mean well, but the philo-Semitism is to say, at, insofar as Judaism and Jewish people play a part in the construction of Christianity and the world around it, let's take them seriously on their own terms. Is that fair to say? Yeah, take them seriously on their own terms and be historically honest about what the data themselves say and don't view it only through a lens that comes internally from one's own religious tradition. This is the problem. It's much larger than Christianity. The problem basically is people in any given religious community are not likely to have a very enlightened view or a very firsthand view of the uh, religious beliefs and practices of people outside their community. There's something self-referential and self-reinforcing about having a profound religious com commitment. I believe it was my former colleague at the University of Chicago, Martin Marty, who said the committed are the least tolerant and the tolerant are the least committed. He may have said in the opposite order, that the tolerant are the, le are the least committed and the committed are the least tolerant. So one easy way to be tolerant of outsiders is not to have a strong identity of one's own. In other words, to live in the hyphen between, in, in, the hyphen in the word interfaith. That's a quote from the uh, late Jewish theologian Eugene Borowitz. Some people, it goes something like this, some people's faith is limited to the hyphen in the word interfaith. So if you have a strong religious identity and think with the religious, with the texts and literature and symbol, in the symbolic universe of your own religion, it's, it can be hard to understand another religion or secularity and it can be hard for secular people to get into the skins, into the minds of religious people of whatever community, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever, but that's the problem that basically, if you just want to suspend your commitments uh, and have, or have no commitments, just be neutral. It's easier to be open-minded because you don't really stand for anything. There are no limits, uh, but to have a strong religious commitment while at the same time being fair and honest about the alternatives, the rivals, uh, that's a, a very major challenge. And I see it generally as one, which all of us, certainly myself included, uh, often fail. So I want to back up to get a better understanding of Judaism. So you talked about rabbinic Judaism and th this was interesting. And this is the part that I really wanted to get back to, but you, so you said fifth century, maybe even going on to now, but so there's rabbinic Judaism prior to that there's second temple Judaism. What is prior to that? Can you talk about what those phases are? Cause that applies to the, the article here. Another very good question, a difficult question. All these terms people use, first temple, second temple, late second temple, Hellenistic, uh, Roman period, uh, rabbinic Judaism, whatever, uh, right up into the present day, because rabbinic tradition, as I say, uh, continues into our own time. All those terms are to some degree arbitrary. All those terms are to some degree made up by or useful to historians but they don't jump out of the text necessarily. So you could talk about early Israel, the people Israel in its earliest moments, who knows when that is, 13th century BCE, something like that. Very little hard evidence for that. The emergence of Israel in the 11th, 10th centuries BCE. People often talk about biblical Israel or first temple Israel. The first temple goes up about maybe 960. BCE, something like that, but the, and then it's destroyed by the Babylonians around 587 or 586 BCE. Hey, this is Jared. We had a bit of a technical issue here and I had to cut a chunk out. So Professor Levinson had to begin his point over. 
I hope that this is not annoying and it doesn't take anyone out of the interview too much. This is entirely on me. Please don't let this reflect your thinking of him. And I really appreciate everyone listening to the interview. What was I saying? What were we talking about? Oh, the various terms. Maybe I should start over. The various terms for Jewish history, for ancient Jewish history, have a certain kind of arbitrary feel to them. But people talk about the emergence of Israel maybe around the 13th century BCE. In other words, about 3,300 years ago, something like that. And uh, gathering strength into the uh, 12th, 11th, 10th century BCE. The building of a temple by Solomon in Jerusalem around maybe 960 BCE, something like that, which lasts until the Babylonians destroyed in 587. These are, of course, hundreds of years of meetings go on during these periods. But people call that the first temple. By it, we shown in Hebrew, the first temple. There's a temple in exile in the 6th century. And although many Israelites and Judeans were not exiled. And then there is a reconstruction, a return from some people from Babylonia towards the end of the 6th century and the building of the second temple. It goes up maybe around 516, 515 BCE, and then destroyed by the Romans in the year 70, the common era. All, all these terms, as I say, have an arbitrary feel to them. The second temple period surely is when rabbinic Judaism, the, the, the group we call Chazal, the, the Hafamim, the sages, the rabbis originate, even if that term doesn't appear until mid-first century of the Common Era. These periods are overlapping their conveniences of modern historians rather than something that just immediately leaps up out of the text. But you'd have to say that what we mean today by Judaism in all its forms has its roots in the rabbinic movement in the form of Judaism you had in Talmud and Midrash from maybe, I don't know, first century CE through sixth, seventh century CE, something like that. But again, it continues to exist. It continues to exist in the early Middle Ages, through the Middle Ages, and right into our own time, observance of halacha, observance of Jewish law, people making decisions and refinements on questions of Jewish law are things that are mark Jewish civilization now for in nearly 2,000 years or more, and uh, continue to this very same, this very day. You might put it this way. You might say that you have this literary collection called the Hebrew Bible, which Christians came to call at some point in the second century of the common era, they came to call Old Testament. It's not called that in the New Testament itself. That book is product of ancient Israelite religion in all its diversity and various streams and, and internal controversies. And it has a group of successor religions. One successor religion is Samaritanism. Don't make fun of the Samaritans. There aren't many of them, but there's some good Samaritans. And another form is Judaism, which eventually it became standardized or whatever in the form of rabbinic Judaism at some point in late antiquity, in the time of the Roman Empire, later Roman Empire. Another form is Christianity, which emerges out of the Judaism in the first century of the Common Era, but obviously has deep roots and is very involved in interpreting the Hebrew Bible Christologically, interpreting the Hebrew Bible so as to energize their own claims having to do with the church, with Jesus, with the gospel, etc. And that's where a lot of this opposition and a lot of this caricaturing and this dichotomizing of Judaism as negative and Christianity as positive has its, its source, its origins. But that sort of rhetoric is not at all unusual in the world of intersectarian polemic among Jews in antiquity. And Jews should not feel that it's a, a unique innovation, a unique to Christianity or an innovation of the church in its efforts to show that it is the predicted fulfillment of Judaism that yeah, to Jews' own scripture points towards the church and its gospels and Jesus and the eschatological expectation of Christianity, that kind of angry, dismissive rhetoric is actually rather typical of ancient and probably also modern uh, interreligious polemics. So that the idea of interpreting the Hebrew Bible as the Old Testament in, in hmm. saying this passage in Isaiah is always meant to be about Jesus. Are there similarities between that and say 
there's this storm God over here that has these characteristics that are talked about in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, is that a similarity or do you think, eh, not really? I think not. I think there is cultural continuity between Israelite religion and what you might broadly call Canaanite religion and also Babylonian religion and Egyptian religion. There is more continuity and commonality and than uh, most believers, most Jewish believers would have any tendency to recognize. Again, they, people tend to take their own scriptures as simply telling you the plain unvarnished truth, and they dismiss the rhetorical situation, the situation of competition, the, re, the rhetorical situation that calls forth those polemics. They just, they don't know about them. Very few people who describe, let's say, Babylonian religion highly in highly negative forms or who accept the highly negative stereotypes of Babylonian religions that you see among, or Canaanite religion or, or whatever that you see among the prophets, very few of those people actually can control the sources from those traditions. And their view is funneled through their own particular religious literature, which, as I say, is not disinterested. It's polemical. It's, in, in, it's the result of competition between their own group and the groups they're trying to dismiss. But I don't think you'd see in the Hebrew Bible a sense that, there, that the religion of Israel, whatever one wants to call it, is a fulfillment of the scriptures, if there are even words such things, of Canaanites or Babylonians or Egyptians. There's cultural continuity, and you can see elements of cultural continuity. You can see indebtedness of ancient Israelite sources to earlier ancient Near Eastern sources without any question. But it's not as if they say, all right, here is what they said, and here's what it really means, which is what we represent. I don't think you have a prophecy fulfillment schema in the way the Hebrew Bible interprets the religions of the ancient uh, Near East, the way you have a prophecy fulfillment schema in the way that the New Testament interprets the Hebrew Bible. In other words, those, there is a, an awareness in the New Testament that I'm calling the Hebrew Bible is hagraphai, it's the scripture. And the scripture in the New Testament is only what Christians 100 years later would call the Old Testament. There's no such Old Testament to the Old Testament in the sense of quoting the literature of some earlier group in order to say, we are the fulfillment of it. Here's how you should interpret it. There is continuity. There are many things said about the God of Israel. I will say Hashem, the four-letter name of God. Many things said about him that could also be said and were also said about the Canaanite Baal uh, or about the Mesopotamian Marduk or whomever. But they don't name those gods or and treat them with respect, but say what they really mean is our God. Whereas in a lot of the New Testament, they will respectfully cite the scriptures, which is to say the Jewish scriptures, and say what it really means, what it really points to, is our particular community. In so doing, they're doing something that was well known in ancient Judaism. It's not something innovated by the Christians. If, if you see it negatively, you shouldn't say, that's how negative Christians are. No, that's not the case. This idea of updating scriptures, of seeing how they apply in the current age, of interpreting scriptures as applying to our own time and finding fulfillment in our own time. That's something that's uh, very much part of the Hebrew Bible and Second Temple Judaism, certainly part of the Qumran community, the community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, hardly an innovation of Christianity, but it is a different pattern from the way in which the ancient Israelite authors, especially prophets, posed or spoke to about let's say Canaanite or Babylonian religion, which they present as always ridiculous, always false, and people there should be ashamed of following something that's so self-evidently stupid and unreliable. There, there is an aspect, though, that some of these religions are contained within the Hebrew Bible, though, right? So some of the identifiers, that's what this book is that you've got gods like Chemosh, for example, who look an awful lot like the god in the Hebrew Bible. Are some of those characteristics and traits contained within the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, I, I, as I say, there is cultural continuity, stronger cultural continuity 
of ancient Israelite religion of the Hebrew Bible with Canaanite and other, other groups, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, whatever, than I think those authors want you to think. And certainly than most devout modern believers are capable or, or have been trained to recognize. There are cultural continuities. I don't know any place in the Hebrew Bible where it says these Moabites have this kamosh. Yeah. Uh, really, the real kamosh is our God. In other words, yes, kamosh, we should read that, that Moabite literature with respect, but then interpret it as referring to our God. No, they present these other gods as, for the most part, again, there are exceptions to this, but they present these, most of these uh, other gods as nothing more than their idols, nothing more than the icons that represent them. And the people that worship them are so stupid, they can't tell the difference between a deity and a piece of rock or a piece of wood that's been whittled out to look like a human being or whatever. In other words, there's a lot of satire uh, and sarcasm with, the, with respect to the, uh, those other religions. You don't tend to see a lot of satire or sarcasm with respect to the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament. On the contrary, it's regarded as scripture. But now we come to the definitive interpretation of scripture that is fulfilled in the gospel. It's, and so the gospel, in a sense, replaces the Torah, replaces it by fulfilling it, not by renouncing it. Yet replaces the, the church replaces the Jewish people, replaces it because the Jewish people supposedly only foreshadowed the church, etc. Kind of notion of foreshadowing respectful treatment while at the same time saying, no, you in the current generation, you get it wrong. You don't understand your own scripture. You don't see that. I don't see that in the, in the Hebrew Bible. There's no antecedent scripture that the Hebrew Bible speaks about. It's assembled in stages itself as it goes along for a thousand years. But it's not uh, that there is some normative scripture that it claims, of which it claims to be the fulfillment that comes from some other culture or people. Yeah, that, that is helpful. I think some of the reading I did when, I don't know, like 15, 20 years ago, and it may be because of the Christian framework that I come, that I grew up in, that made me think that there was an active attempt to subvert or reappropriate these religious. I don't deny that. I think they. Oh, is, do is some... that the case? I, I was thinking yes. cultural continuity. Well, well, I, I think subvert and reappropriate, and maybe even disguise the degree of continuity that certainly exists between ancient Israel and and antecedent and contemporary ancient Near Eastern cultures. There's no question about that. There is called what I keep calling cultural continuity exists. But I think you see in the New Testament something beyond that. You see as a, a more specific thing. In the New Testament, you see a quotation of the scriptures, which in the New Testament refers to the Old Testament, what they would later call the Old Testament, and to say, here is the fulfillment of it. And that's what I don't see a parallel to in the, in the Hebrew Bible itself. There is no antecedent normative literature that it claims to be fulfilling so the people who would continue to adhere to that antecedent norm of literature are missing the point of their own scriptures. That kind of dynamic of prophecy, fulfillment, foreshadowing, and realization, and that strikes me as something that has roots in ancient Judaism, but that's not the way the Hebrew Bible relates to the antecedent and contemporary ancient Near Eastern cultures. So it's the overt nature of an attempt to marginalize people who are still practicing that didn't really exist as, it's the, as Judaism it's the overt, it's also Yes, it's the overt nature, but more than that, it's the notion of fulfillment. It's the notion of an eschatological end-time fulfillment to a, an ancient promise, which is written in Scripture, which was legitimate when written, but now has finally come to fulfillment. That's the ancient Israelite religion doesn't describe itself. Those sources don't describe themselves as the fulfillment of some promise that came to somebody else earlier. That's not how it works. But they certainly do attempt to adapt and appropriate, modify the cultural, the common cultural patrimony of the ancient Near East, whether in law, in cult, in, in liturgy, cult sacrificial system, liturgy, uh, even some extent narratives. That certainly exists. So on the historical end of things, I'm curious what you think about this. So I, I recently read, I think it was Yakov Dolgopolsky gave a, he wrote an article and he's talking about the stories of the conquest in Joshua. And 
it seems like dubious historicity there with the idea that like we just came in and we took everything over. So as it applies to development of Judaism in the face of the neighborhood in Canaan, do you see any tension between the historicity of those claims and what you're talking about in your chapter here? I'm not a, an archaeologist, okay, but I would say most archaeologists and most serious critical historians would say, no, there's not tension between those things. There's outright contradiction. In other words, there are very major problems with reading, let's say, the book of Joshua's history, reading the supposed Israelite con violent conquest of the land of Canaan and the 31 kings and all that you have in Joshua as his history. I and mean, there are big problems. I think there's a widespread consensus, international uh, consensus, that the archaeological data does not support that. But for example, Jericho was uh, uninhabited at the time. Jericho, the walls of Jericho supposedly f are falling at the beginning of, uh, towards the beginning of uh, uh, Joshua. The claim is that the evidence would show it wasn't even inhabited between, let's say, the 14th and the 12th century BCE. And before that, it wasn't even fortified. I believe that's the current archaeological consensus. So for the most part, I think that the evidence points to a gradual emergence of Israel in and from Canaan as these Canaanite city-states, these Canaanite monarchical city-states ruled by their kinglets, their little kings, and the elite culture they represented came to disintegrate. And so suddenly there are all kinds of new settlements, especially in the central highlands and so forth. Hundreds of new settlements appear, but it does not seem to be the result of any sort of violent conquest from the outside, which is how Joshua describes it and what is mandated in the Torah, what's mandated in the Pentateuch, a violent assault that doesn't seem historically to have taken place. This doesn't exclude the possibility that some nomadic groups from the outside also joined and came in. It doesn't exclude the possibility that there was some core group in Egypt that escaped from Egypt at, at, at some point in something like what is described in the Bible as the Exodus. But the classic model of a violence Brits creed described in Joshua and Daniel and Deuteronomy and elsewhere, that you really don't, uh, you really don't see happening. So this raises a fascinating question. Generally speaking, among all historians and anthropologists today, ethnicity is seen as something that is a socially dependent phenomenon. Ethnicity is not just a biological fact the way people thought it was, let's say, in the 19th century, and some racialists may still think it is. Rather, it emerges in social history. So how does a new ethnic group form? How does this new group called Israel emerge in Canaan? What drew so many residents, not all of them, but why is the residents, former residents of the decaying uh, Canaanite urban centers into these developing villages so that there were five times as many settlements in the early Iron Age as there was in the preceding Bronze Age, we're talking about late in the second millennium BCE. What was the social, religious, cultural process that produced this? In other words, for some people, if you say the violent assault that you have mandated in the Pentateuch and narrated in Joshua never happened historically. For some people, that means you're showing the Bible is false. I think what you may be showing is that those narratives are not to be taken as history. They're not historical fact. Historical facts don't, don't support them. But that doesn't mean that they're false or there isn't a truth in them. It's just the truth has to be understood as using the techniques of folklore and accumulation of traditions and story rhetorically to make a particular point. So I guess that this is a long way of answering your very short question, but to say, no, I think the notion of the violent conquest, which is what I was educated on 50 some years ago in graduate school, that has been severely undermined by archeological research. I, I think underlying that answer, at least in my mind, is that belief may not be a central part of Jewish identity in the way that it is for most, if not all, Christians and Christian identity. Is that, do you feel like that's a fair assessment or? I think there is belief in both traditions and there's practice in both traditions. Certainly as the Jewish identity has emerged over the centuries, the main thing is observance of halakha, of Jewish law, of the life regimen of a Jew that 
regulates just about every aspect of life, whether we're talking about what people eat or how they organize their week or whom they marry or or what their sexual practices are or what they devote their mind to. But those are not practices devoid of theological claims or religious significance. They're not just mindless habits or cultural traditions, and for some Jews they are, but certainly for the classical religious literature, they're not just mindless claims or ethnic traditions or cultural uh, traditions. They, there is a, something theologically being, being, a theological point being made there. So I think a lot of Jews would be troubled by the thought that what they've been taking as historical narrative in the Bible really isn't historical. I would say that if you want to claim something's historical, historians ought to be able to see it. If historians using their methods can't see it, it's not historical. It doesn't make it false, but it does make it true in some sense other than the purely historical. And that's, I think, the, the type of reasoning we need to apply to a case like this. In other words, what is the point of those narratives about those depraved Canaanites with their self-evidently stupid religions, self-evidently stupid and vicious practices, and the need to wipe them out? What is the point of such narratives if it's not a simple description of what ancient Israel actually did at the end of the Bronze Age and beginning of the Iron Age? I think, though, okay, participation, I'll say, and, and it may just be the brand of American Protestant Christianity that I came up in. If you don't believe the things that you're told, you're like you don't get to call yourself a Christian. I think if if I, I think you could go into a lot of synagogues and hear from a lot of Jewish people who are Jewish and who are considered Jewish and who are part of the community that yeah no that that part's not historical in the same way that and then you point to something else that has been verified, and those two things are very different. Those two communities yeah. are very different, right? Yeah, I agree with that. First of all, whether one's Jewish is independent of one's beliefs. In other words, a Jew is someone born from a Jewish mother or who was authentically and legitimately converted to Judaism with an intention to bear the disabilities and the burdens of Jewish identity and to carry out the practices of Judaism. That is what a Jew is. Uh, the, there were people in the Holocaust who were sent to their deaths even though they or their parents had converted they were Jewish, Jewish because they had a Jewish grandparent. In Judaism, if anyone born of a Jewish mother is Jewish, whether they want to be religious or not religious. So there's a much larger element of culture and ethnicity and national tradition and civilization in, in Judaism. It doesn't simply reduce to a kind of a kerygma, proclamation of belief that people have to have. If you don't have it, you're not really a Jewish. In that sense, you're Absolutely right. And it's also the case that if you look at biblical narratives that, that people often take as historical and how they're developed in rabbinic literature, in Midrash, I'm talking about the second, third, fourth, fifth century of the Common Era and later, you'll see that they'll add to those narratives. They'll have new data, they'll have new exchanges, new conversations, all kinds of things taking place that you don't find in the Bible. And yet those sources claim that's what the Bible means. You see the tradition growing over time, which implies that it wasn't really taken as something that's fixed in the past. It's not really taken as something that is infallible or inerrant or something in its original textual form, because they're augmenting and interpreting the, the, the original textual form. You can even see that kind of inner biblical midrash going on in, in the Bible itself. You can see embarrassing narratives simply not being retold. Uh, Chronicles, as I recall, tells the story of David, but leaves out the whole story of uh, Bathsheba, Uriah and Bathsheba. I recall Chronicles just skips that. Is that because they're trying to whitewash? No, I think it's because what's important about David is not his sex life. What's important about David is not his messy, private, psychological life. It's David as the elect of God, the faithful, the one faithful to God, the founder of the dynasty, the person who has first got the idea that there should be a temple, the patron of singing, of psalms, and that sense of 
the Levitical singers, and so forth. That's what's important to Chronicles about David. So they can reshape history. What do you think of as history and therefore set in concrete? It's really not set in concrete. Tradition continues to interpret it and reshape it. It's a textual verbal phenomenon and not just a phenomenon of sheer immutable facts. So that means when you say something like the conquest is must be history, rabbinic tradition adds to it, takes away from it, tries to address some embarrassing things like the note of genocide and, and tries to find some way of saying, no, that's really not what happened. And that suggests a different model of history from what modern people who insist on objective facticity as history have in mind. Man, there's so much here. So we're coming up on our time. So I want to make sure that you have plenty of time for this last question where I like to end. Is there anyone out there that you would like people to read or a YouTuber or a blogger or someone doing lectures that you would recommend in the broad world of biblical studies? Oh, I don't know. There's, there's so much. I, I really would rather not, I'd rather not try to pick somebody out. In other words, uh, there's so much literature and so much uh, good scholarship and history and textual studies that there's really no name I, I, I'd want to, I'd feel comfortable providing for that. Any name I would provide, people would immediately think of, oh, it wasn't this person, wasn't that person, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I won't do it. I always like to recommend myself, but of course that's oh, because I'm very modest and humble. Throw some books and works out there then. What, what would you like people to go check out of yours? Oh, I don't know. On the subject of common origins and different developments and polemics, I have a book called Inheriting Abraham, the Library of Jewish Ideas in Princeton University Press, which deals with the figure of Abraham and this whole claim, which I think is weak, that there's something called Abrahamic religion. That might be interesting. On the subject you raise of taking over of other ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, cultures by the Israelites and how they use that to make a theological claim, I think my book, Creation and the Persistence of Evil, is one people might want to read. I call it The Jewish Drama, Divine Omnipotence. I'm not here to push my own stuff or anybody else's material. I would just uh, uh, thank you for the service you provide and, and uh, sponsoring a very interesting podcast and uh, for having me uh, speak on it. Here, I'll, I'll throw you a curveball then. Nobody else gets okay. this curveball. What do you All read right. for fun? Any leisure reading you'd recommend? Oh, I don't know. I think the guy's name is Ben McInerney. Let me just see one second here. Okay. No, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Sketch that. It's Ben McIntyre, I like to read some of these you know, spy novels and war novels, mostly spy. I want to call them novels. Take it back. Ben McIntyre has books about spies, spycraft that are historical. They read like novels, but they're very well researched. And this is about a group of saboteurs on in in mostly at least at the beginning in North Africa during World War II. British saboteurs, and for fun, I at the moment I'm enjoying reading that. Uh, but I, I have kind of crazy classicistic interests. I like uh, linguistics. I read a lot of different languages and try to practice various languages. I enjoy Latin literature, for example, and all kinds of, of things like that. But for the most part, my vocation, which is this biblical or Jewish and comparative religion scholarship, very strongly overlaps with my avocation. And I enjoy reading that kind of thing, even for fun quite apart from any professional use I may or may not make of it. Cool. And hey, just so you're not alone in recommending leisure reading, I would recommend Kurt Vonnegut to people for leisure reading. And then I just recently listened to a biography of Terry Pratchett, and it's reinvigorated my love of his fantasy humor Discworld series. Oh, thank you for that. And what uh, Kurt Vonnegut would you most recommend? Mother Night. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's like George Carlin on paper for me. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, good. I think both your audience and, and I appreciate the uh, recommendation. So just if there's anything you wanted to say in closing about this work or anything else going on, you have the floor for one last comment. Okay. I think it's essential to be intellectually honest in dealing with other cultures, religions, communities, scriptures. Very hard to do if one has a profound commitment to one's own. And so that's the major challenge not simply to be some sort of uncommitted interpreter, but to be a committed interpreter 
who nonetheless can hear the voice of the other authentically. That's a very major psychological and hermeneutical and cultural challenge. And this essay that you very kindly focused on is my effort to say, let's try to do this uh, both in, in, in terms of how Christians receive Judaism, but also in terms of how Jews and Christians perceive the ancient Near East. It's not to say you have to agree with or endorse the alternatives. It's not to say that you can't find ugly things in the other, but first pay attention to what the other actually says about, about himself and, and what the actual thought structures are, and be alert to the possibility that you're engaging in a self-serving caricature. That's a very tall challenge. I don't claim consistently to meet it myself, but I think it's one that we all have to uh, pay attention to. Certainly something to aspire to. John D. Levinson, thank you for being here, sir. Thank you for having me. I've been honored by your conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite platform. If you are interested in following, supporting, or engaging with the podcast anywhere else, check out the link tree that I've hyperlinked in the show notes. I try to put episodes out as soon as possible for $5 a month on Patreon. So if there's something that I've announced or you've seen on social media, just know $5 a month. You can listen to every episode that I have edited and I try to get them up within a week of recording the conversation. Take care.